We are um, plowing our way through a selected series of, of particular psalms. And today is uh, this Psalm 73. And I suppose if I were to narrow down the focus of this, uh, it is really kind of a discussion, a study of faith. Not what faith is, which is uh, a, a fairly classic thing you'll hear in church, like the description of, the depiction of faith and how to get faith, how to grow faith, how to be in, in that mind frame. Um, th- that's not what 73 is about. This is more like what, it's, what the journey is of, like faith. How does it feel? Um, Sometimes, uh, it, just to be honest, the discussion about faith can be so frustration, like creates so much frustration in us um, because it's described many times so sterile and so perfect, so complete. Like this is the picture of faith and it's what we all aspire to and this is what we put our efforts towards, this, this particular shape of faith. But if I match that description to my experience, sometimes I walk away and go, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm living that or, or if I perceive that or, or let's, just, let's just be honest, maybe it's sometimes. Like sometimes I don't feel it. It doesn't feel like that today. And, and if we wanted to be honest, if we were truly transparent and didn't care about the ramifications, we would say faith is not easy. Many times faith is, faith is difficult. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you, ever, have you ever struggled to believe? It's, it's okay to have an answer. You, you might think you'd be embarrassed. It's okay. Have you ever, have you ever questioned your belief? Have you ever had doubts? Have you, have you ever stopped believing? Because I, I know many Christians who have moments where it's like, I'm done. Just moments where something, some particular set of circumstances creates this disappointment, like, like huge disappointment maybe in God or what he's doing in the world, and so we just kind of get confused. Um, Here's what I've discovered, and I think if you've lived long enough, you'll admit this, that in your span of Christian living, your faith will be stretched, it will be challenged, and you will experience seasons of questions. You'll have doubts. Not necessarily maybe epic doubts, but maybe they're doubts enough to create this shutdown, this spiritual kind of heart shutdown in your heart towards the things of God. That happens to people. Psalm 73 is the story of a godly man who felt that, who felt the frustration in his faith and, and actually experienced a, a period of struggling. This, this uh, psalm is 3,000 years old, but it reads like we could have read it yesterday. That's how this sounds to me. So if you have been one of those people who've ever been worn out by the trouble of your life or wondered ever in your thoughts, where's God in this? This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. This seems to be too much. Then this is your song because this is the songwriter's expression of that experience. If you've ever felt your faith slipping, um, then you have a lot in common with the writer of this psalm. Psalm 73 is, is written by a songwriter named Asaph. And Asaph was a worship leader in the, in the temple in Jerusalem during King David's reign. So his job was to emote. He was a songwriter, okay? And so he expressed his own experience in the world and his own journey with it in this particular song. And it's pretty easy to break down. I know it's 28 verses, but it's very simple. Asaph makes some observations about his world, which leaves him with a question, a problem that eventually through the journey of this psalm, he answers 
in the best way possible. So in, in essence, this is a good like big picture psalm for us to, to look at if you've ever gone through the problem of wrestle match with your faith. So um, let me just pray as we get into this and pick it apart that God would just really encourage us because in, in my mind, there is some wonderful honesty and transparency in, in Asaph's psalm, but there's also this unbelievably huge conclusion, which, which I really want us to leave with this morning. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's wisdom. God, I do pray right now that you would uh, take these words and open our hearts to them. I pray that we could be transparent and honest at the same time, God, be uh, faithful in telling the story of you and who you are and what you've done and what you've promised. God, I pray we do leave encouraged. If there are any here today who are struggling with their faith, I pray that they sit up and lean up to this story pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pick this apart. Asaph begins this song. Now, remember, that's what it is. It's a song. It's meant to be sang in, in one setting, but he begins this song by confessing a serious crisis of faith in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, here, here's the crisis. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The, the problem that Asaph had that leaves him with a huge question is this, why? I'm to the place where I'm envying the wicked and why? Why do I struggle right now? Here's why. Because it looks like the righteous are getting punked and the wicked are prospering. It looks like this thing is upside down and backwards. It looks like all my effort towards the kingdom has really gone for naught because everyone else gets everything they want. You ever felt that way? Does ever feel like the world is upside down? Like the wicked do whatever they want and they reap the rewards from everything they want and you can keep your head down and love and believe and try, and it's hard for you. It's a reasonable question, a good human question to ask. Why? Why do the wicked seem to do better than the righteous? Asaph is not the only one, or will he be the last one to ever feel this way? Lots of us do. You don't have to do much work at all to look around you and see people who are way better off, who have more stuff, more influence, more power, more freedom, more ease, more peace, from your perspective than you do. So what? But if you look a little bit farther, a little bit harder, a lot of these people are, let's be blunt, they're jerks. They're cruel and they're mean and they cheat and they lie and they take and they hoard and they're happy. And you look at that and go, well, this doesn't seem right. And, and to be fair, if I was Asaph's father, I'd say, Suck it up. That's the world. Get over it. People have more to, than you do, and people are jerks. Next subject. It's okay. You'll be all right. But this next one, this, this little burden he has, is he, he compares a righteous living to crazy, wicked living. And he says they're better off. They, they have more. Why is it that they prosper? And it seems like the righteous suffer. That isn't right. Would you agree? Every part of every person would cry out injust. That's injustice. So we've all felt this way. 
that you would maybe by your own confession would declare yourself a Christian. So there are lots of like verbiages in the scriptures to describe your relationship. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're the possession of God. You're the sons and daughters of the king. You are his. You are his dearly loved who in this God-changed heart of you is pursuing righteousness and love towards him, right? You're doing all those things. Then why is it that the bad guys seem to get away with murder and the righteous get crushed? You feel the tension? Well, that's the tension that Asaph's feeling uh, in this particular song, and if there is a better picture for injustice, I don't know of it. I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. Why do liars and cheats get raised to power and influence and leadership? And a missionary somewhere far away is going to have his life taken from him because he says the name of Jesus. Doesn't seem right. Why? Why do God mockers get everything they want, seems to me? And some believing mother who is raising a child to love Jesus gets brain cancer. Why? Why why does it seem that all the feelings of those who clearly hate Jesus and his kingdom have full reign to express themselves, but the feelings of the redeemed are openly mocked? Why? That is Asaph's question. So it's a it's a tension. I'm glad he answers it in one song because I wouldn't want a whole album of this, but um, verses four through 14 is his reflection, his observations of how crazy and jacked up this whole world is. And that's why I said, if you read this, you can read it like you're reading the newspaper because it feels this way. So let me just pick apart these few verses, 10 verses or so, uh, and just show you the observations of Asaph and why he is so stressed at this moment regarding his faith, okay? Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they are strong and they are healthy. You would think that sin and wickedness and doing your own thing would equal like your total body breaking down on you. No, they're fat and happy. They're doing well. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't seem to have any hassles. Now, I understand this is Asaph's perspective. And he's not living in their kitchen. But as he perceives it to be, it is easy for them. They got no trouble whatsoever. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. As a, as a garment, they're arrogant and they get away with murder. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're selfish. They're spoiled and get whatever they want and wish for. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They make fun of others and they kill other people with their words and their bullies. Now, my guess is some of you are picturing a person. <laughs> uh, we've all met people like this, but he goes on. If you want more color of the wicked, he says, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They are loud mouths who boast and think it's about them and they're always right. Interesting, this almost reads like prerequisite if you're going to run for office, so... Like, this is the job description. Um, Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. This, this is really horrible, but, but what Asaph is saying is they're popular. People love these people. 
In fact, the New Living Translation translates it uh, in a very particular way. I think it's poignant. People drink in their words. Is it true? Seems to be true. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They get to the place where they blaspheme God. He's clueless. He didn't know anything. He has no influence because I'm right. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, carefree, joy, big smiles, easy going life, and they increase in riches. Richer by the minute. Asaph looks at his world, the wicked world around him, and goes, it is great for them. People like what they say. They say whatever they want. They get whatever they want. It's easy. They're fat. They're healthy. It is awesome for, for them. That's his observations of the wicked. Now, maybe that's not always true. I bet if Asaph was here, we'd say, not always, every one of them. He would say, no, but it's mostly true. It's mostly true enough for Asaph to say in verse 3, I looked around and I envied the wicked. Because it's mostly true that people that rebel against God and do whatever they want and don't care about what they do to other people, they get it. They get what they want and they're happy and, and, and whole, all right? So how does that happen? How does a worship leader, a man of God like Asif, Asif get to this place of crisis of faith? How did he get here? Well, he, he did what I think we're prone to do as well. He started by judging other people by what only his eyes could see. He looked around, and from his perspective, yeah, it looks like it's going great for them. But he didn't know or didn't remember what he should have, that there is more going on than what you can see. You, you know that, right? Church, you know that, right? No matter how you perceive how well things are going for them, there's more to the story than what you can perceive from your eyes. Maybe some, maybe some of the bad guys prosper some of the time, but, but how it feels isn't how it is. Because there is a biblical truth about those who are wicked, who run from the Lord, and their world is pretty, pretty hard, and I wouldn't want to live that either. So let me just remind you of the bigger, broader narrative of the wicked's life. Proverbs, the wisdom writer Solomon said this, a treacherous person walks a rocky road. It's not smooth sailing for the, for the wicked. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, speaking of sinners, he says, wherever they go, destruction and misery follow them. King David wrote this, Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Here's what you know, regardless of what you see. Everyone in the world who doesn't know Jesus is on this thing called the treadmill of life. There is like a mouse wheel. Do you know what a mouse wheel is? And there's no end to a mouse wheel. And a mouse gets on that thinking that there is, and he just goes and goes and goes. That is the picture of no peace. There's no end. I get it. Without a concept of God, an understanding of Jesus, and being forgiven of sins, you have to run. You have to run to the next joy, to the next satisfaction, to the next pleasure, to the next amount of money, to the next job. you got to just keep going. You're the mouse on the treadmill. But here's what you never have, ever. No peace, because there's no God. You were created in the image of God. Those who deny him can't, can't run from the truth that he is over them and created them in a shape, right? And here's the shape that they are more free and more at peace and more resonate when they're in line with God, their creator, than any other place. And so guess what happens to the wicked? They run apart from God. And they run and they run and they run and they run and they'll never find satisfaction. They'll never find joy. They'll never find happiness. Regardless of what you perceive, 
Asaph needed to remember it's way more than what you can see. This is their reality. Here's something else Asaph um, did that we share with him. He was feeling about injustice without a thought of God. He was feeling. Feeling out loud about all these things that are wrong and not right while he was forgetting about God and his control. We do that sometimes, don't we? It's easy to turn on the news or watch stories and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And you can get so, right now in our culture, man, it comes by the hour, doesn't it? There's another cataclysmic story by the hour, and we can get so caught up in the the news at the moment that we forget all about God. And he did that. Asaph looked around, and he had no thoughts of God. When you see terrorism strike in a city in France, and, you know, hundreds of people at least wounded, if, if not, I don't know, the count of dead now. Shooting in Baton Rouge, racism, violence, our world. And here's, here's what I'm telling you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with feeling. That's how God made us. I pray that when you turn on the news today that you see those stories and your heart breaks. I pray that you feel. I pray you never get indifferent to the stuff in the world and the things that aren't fair and the injustices and the racism and the fighting and the violence and the stupid human answers that people come up apart from God. I pray you never get so cynical that you just kind of just want to live in the mess. I, I, I just pray that your heart feels all the time. But as a believer, if that is your confession, you must never feel without God. You will not be anything but confused if you set God off to the side while you try to sort out the world. You can't feel without God. There is a bigger reality than all the trouble that we see or all the trouble that we experience. And here's the reality. There is a God. He is on his throne, and this is his kingdom. That's the reality. In spite of what it seems to us, in spite of how it is going down as we witness it, you know this, but, but since the fall, since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there has been a battle going on. The scriptures define it between light and darkness, between truth and between lies, between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. But let me just remind you of what has happened past tense, okay? The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 reminds us this truth, that Jesus is in charge and he's already won. So listen to what he says in Colossians 2. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in his death. Past tense, put them to shame. He triumphed over them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what he says. Death, where is your victory? Where's the sting of death? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This issue, whatever confuses us, called sin and wickedness and evil and man's need, has already been sorted out in Jesus. He's already won. Now, I know there's time to work. There's still things to happen, people to come to faith. There's still things going on. I get that. I'm not naive. But the question of how this is going to turn out has already been settled, has it not? Jesus is in charge and he has already won. Here's the other thing that Asaph did that we have a tendency to do that will bring to us our spiritual kind of discouragement. He overvalued this life in comparison to the life to come. He just thought this is worth it. For a moment, he looked around at the things and the perceived joys that this world has to offer and he totally forgot that there's a better one to come. 
And that happens to us, doesn't it? Isn't that what makes trouble or suffering huge when we can't perceive the joys being bigger in the future? Of course it is. For a time, Asaph forgot about God's judgment. Romans, uh, or Hebrews chapter 9, the writer said this, it's appointed unto men to die and then to face judgment. There is already an appointment on the calendar for judgment, okay? Whatever seeming injustices we see or experience, nothing will escape the sifting of God. Not one thing. So Asaph needed to remember something, that God might, might be taking his time because he's got other things he's working on, bigger ripples, but he will never miss a thing. He will never miss a thing. And maybe for a time, Asaph forgot about the ult- his ultimate desire, that his ultimate satisfaction isn't in the things that the world celebrates or the way in which it celebrates. His greatest satisfaction, the greatest satisfaction that anyone could possibly know is to be fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted by the Father. And Asaph knew that, and he forgot. This is how David described it in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where? With you. That's where pleasures forevermore are. Not here. Not as I perceived it in my, in my angst. But Asaph wasn't remembering that. In verses 13 and 14, he hits the bottom. Look at what it says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is his low point. Tell me you can't relate to him. Tell me every person in here has a low point. You just can't see things clearly. And all you can see is the, the hurt, the broken. That's the easiest thing that you see. Listen to another translation of this same text. It kind of rings in my heart at least. The New Living says, was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure? Was it for nothing that I kept from doing wrong? All I get is trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. That was his low point. Like, I'm, I'm, I was loving you, and it seems at this point for nothing. Things are upside down. Things are wrong. Now, I want to stop for a second and remind you, this is a songwriter emoting, Okay. Feeling his way through a reality. I, I love this because w- one is, I, I kind of, I love music, so I can almost picture him in this whole sequence kind of going through his journey. It's like he picked up his journal and like he picked a month and said, let me write a song about the month of July or something. And here's where I was and here's where I landed. L- last night I was watching the Farm Network. <laughs> um, and there was an old singer-songwriter on there named John Prime. You guys know him? You don't, you should. Um, but he was emoting about something so small, but it moved me so deeply. He was writing about coal mining and ripping and tearing the land. He's an old dude. He, he's a cancer survivor. He is so simplistic, just a guitar in him. And I was leaning into the television to listen to him. Because in his journey in life, he was expressing a feeling about this story. And I picture Asaph writing this song, and I kind of lean into this song. Like, it was really bad. Like, he was really struggling with his faith here. How's this, how's this thing going to land? And so in this journal experience for Asaph, as he's writing out this song, he comes to his senses, and he starts to write how he came to a clear thought. At one point, it's all up for grabs. This is not fair. I'm envying the wicked. And now he thinks clearly. And this is the first thing he mentions. Verse 15 
If I had said, if I had said I will speak thusly, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's the first thing he mentions, that he was careful with what he shared with others. It seems weird to have this even show up here, but in Asaph's experience of coming out of this, he was careful with his words. In other words, he didn't vomit his, his depression, his spiritual angst on others too weak to carry it. I was careful. I didn't hand that out with the congregation. I didn't write songs that, that left them hanging. I didn't do that. And there is good wisdom in this for us. Not every feeling should be shared and not every doubt expressed. Sometimes we do need to go to someone wiser than us to to understand, to sympathize, to guide us. That's certainly true. And sometimes that guidance will tell you not to make a a major deal out of every temporary feeling. (laughs) Because they're temporary. And here's here's reality. I don't know the distance between verse 1 and verse 28. I don't know if it was months. I don't know if it was years. I don't know if it was days or hours. I have no idea. But I think what we could say post-Asaph's experience was, man, aren't you glad you didn't exaggerate the front part? Because the back part's really important. In fact, it's more important than the front part. But here's the reality. Wisdom says not to do that. Sometimes we, we can bring unintentional weight and hurt on others who are struggling with their own doubts. And besides that, there is this reality too. When we're feeling like Asaph with questions flooding our minds about why this and why that and why that specific, we get down to really detailed things. Well, many of these detailed things, we're never going to have an answer this side of heaven. We already know the big picture, but the detail, like the small little particular whys, which flood our minds and probably our prayer requests, we're probably not going to know. Settle down. That's, that's basically what this wisdom says. If I would have betrayed the generation by speaking out loud, that would have been a problem. Here, here's, the, here's the second thing Asaph tells us when he sorted this out or how he sorted out. Probably the most poignant one, verses 16 and 17. He goes to the source of all understanding. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. This is uh, so true. This is more true than I can even express to you. This is the most important part of this deal, okay? In the presence of God, the people of God see clearly and nowhere else. Did you hear that? You can be so close to your broken marriage or your broken kids or your broken job or your broken finances or your broken world or your broken country or your broken friends. You can be close, so close to all the broken things and so far from the answer, the definitive truth, who is God and, and what he's doing in this world and you lose all scope, all perspective. But here's the reality that Asaph learned that we need to be reminded of. In the presence of God, we see things so differently. Let me ask you some questions. Who understands what we don't understand? I want to hear you say it. Who? Who has a plan for our lives? Who, who, Who has the motives for us that are only and always good? Who is never confused, never frustrated by what is going on? You're getting the routine here. This is pretty, even if you don't know, the answer coming up is God, all right? <laughs> Who brings peace beyond description and understanding? Do you believe that? In the presence of God comes perspective. That's what Asaph said. 
There is no mystery here. Asaph begins the journey of his spiritual sanity by a perspective of going to the source of all understanding. Now, here's what I confess, and I think I'm just going to declare over us. We all have horrendously bad habits when it comes to where to go for our understanding. I don't know what yours is. I don't know if you cope. I don't know if you medicate. I don't know if you get distance. I don't know what you do. I, I know what I do. I get hyperactive. Something to do. I don't get understand. I'm just confessing it. I, I, I wear people out getting hyperactive. I, I don't help others when I get energized. It's not good. And I don't know what your version of it is, but my version is, oh, okay, try to fix it. Try to make it better. Um, we all have bad habits. I, I just wonder how much pain we'd save ourselves if we started, started, started with the source of all understanding as opposed to our options, Right? Let me just tell you this, and it's no surprise, and I'm not trying to be flippant about it, okay? Where do you come, Christian? Where do you go for the source? Is it just an understanding that there's a God? Let me, let me tell you what you do practically. If prayer and the word are an essential parts of getting close to the source of all understanding, I'm telling you you're going to walk away confused and struggle with your faith. I promise. Prayer is so much more than just that moment when you got to have that emergency and you want to break the glass and get, get help. Prayer is where you get understanding. The word, the word, I, I don't know if this happens to you. I know, well, I take the back. I think I know it does. There are moments I've read a passage a thousand times and I just read it. And it kind of comes and it goes like it did the last 999 times. And then there's one time based on an experience, a mood, some feeling, some problem, some trouble, some question, right? And this verse that was always there now gets like font 29. Do you know what I'm saying? And it jumps out at me like, where were you hiding for 20-some years of my faith? Where was that? Right here when you needed it. And you're going to miss it if you are one of those people who just like to get filled up on Sundays and come back next week. I'll, I can almost draw out your faith experience. It's like my heart when I'm running. Oh, he's going to live, he's going to die, he's going to live, he's going to die. <laughs> that, that's how it goes. But if you lean into the source, if you lean into the source of all understanding, there will be a more of a, not so much of a, make sense? And if this is on podcast, nobody will understand what I just did, so <laughs> it's okay, come to church. Um, <laughs> Here's the third thing Asaph does. He recalls the end of the wicked. Now, I'm not suggesting that you put on a happy face and plow through this. I'm just telling you that Asaph thought about it. He thought about it. Is it true? Is it true that the wicked will get away with murder? Here's how he concluded it, verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's almost like this short little paragraph is Asaph answering himself. Do you really envy the wicked? Think about it, boy. Do you really envy them? And he comes to his senses when he, he writes this. Why would you envy the wicked? They're in big trouble and they don't know it, is what he concludes. They have no concept of God or his power or what he plans to do for those who stiff arm him. They have forgotten or don't know anything about it. And Asaph's going, do you really think to yourself, Asaph, do you really envy them? Not really, no, no. 
I changed my I changed the song. Let's change the tune here. To the to the wicked, nothing's eternal. Everything's right now. To to the wicked, um, get what you can, because this is all that there is. Asaph remembered what, what we should remember. The wicked get away with nothing. If you feel like the world's upside down and backwards, then you need to be reminded the wicked get away with nothing. They may look like they're getting away with it, but not in the end. Here's how Asaph describes the conclusion. Three particular things in these verses. Verse 19, their destruction is sudden and unexpected. Destroyed in a moment. It was going so good. I was so happy. I had what I wanted. No thought of anything but myself and selfishness. Over. Sudden and unexpected. He also says this about their destruction. It is complete and total. Swept away utterly. Nothing to be saved. And he mentions it's personal with God. The Lord will rouse himself to despise the wicked. Man, that's a horrible sentence. It's like he gets up and rouses himself to go after those. And here's why it's personal for God. This is not like him losing his mind. This is why it's personal. Because the wicked have rejected him. Romans 1, he has put himself on display so that no man is without excuse. He has displayed himself in the heavens and all creation. He's displayed himself in making us like him. And yet mankind has said, no, there is no God. There is no God. There is no God. In fact, they mock him. And what's, what's even a more beautiful picture of, of this God of ours who is pure and right and serious about sin is he waits in his patience. According to Peter, not wishing any to perish, he waits. He waits. And some of you, I don't know, maybe some of you who would say of your own heart, man, I'm one of those wicked people, but if you're hearing my words, if you're discerning what I'm saying right now, what you're experiencing at this moment is the patience of God while he invites you to believe the truth about Jesus. But if you reject him, it's personal, and he will rouse himself to despise the wicked. And that's what Asaph had to remind himself. It might look out of balance, but he will make it right. There's a fourth thing that Asaph says that he did, and I thought of different words to use to describe this, but this one works and it'll stick. He realizes he's stupid, okay? Um, Verses 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in, in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Eugene Peterson, his paraphrase, says, I was totally ignorant like a dumb ox. That's what Asaph is talking about. How often have you been here? Like if you could record my thoughts, like there'd be lots of thoughts like this. What were you thinking? Why did you say that? Why did you go there? Why did you do that? And then this, you fool. You ever do that? You're an idiot. And it's because there is a greater narrative of the beauty of God and his affections for me and the power to live outside of all the wicked that's pressing in on me. And in moments, I just kind of wander off and I go, well, maybe, maybe. Put my little toe over there. Why did I do that? You're a fool. And so here's Asaph having that experience going, what were you thinking? When I got to that place, I became as a dumb ox, okay? 
his uh, describing, in his describing of his own story, there is a truth that Asaph leaves us with. And I, I want this to kind of ring in your ears. Envy and anger and bitterness always corrupt the heart and leave us senseless. That is a truth that will always be true. If you get to the place of questioning God and thinking he's not good to you, if you get to the place of storing up bitterness and resenting and you just kind of hunker down in all the ugly stuff, then you will become senseless when it comes to the things of God. You'll be a dumb ox, okay? If we use that paraphrase. Got two more things and we're done. Esau does something else. He remembers God and his grace. Boy, does the church need this. Verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Gosh, think about it. What does the world have to offer that's better than this? Come on, church. What does the world have to offer compared to the permanency of God's relationship to you forever, ever, ever? Nothing. Nothing. It can't compare at all. Here's what he says. God has, God is, and God will be for us. You hold my right hand. You hold my hand past, present, and future. I know that. I know you've been there. I've watched you do it. I feel it now, and I know you're faithful to it tomorrow. You guide me in all this confusion, all this mess of things I don't like, and things seem out of order. You are still in the process of guiding me, and you've made a promise. Someday you're taking me to glory to be with you forever with no sin or no blindness to separate us. Here's what I hang on to. Your gospel of grace. You're with me forever. Nothing compares to that. Have you ever envied the world? Think. Think. If you ever stopped and got embittered and think it's lopsided, then just think. For the wicked, this earth is the only heaven they're ever going to know. It's as good as it's ever going to get for them. But, but for those of us who call ourselves Christian, it's the, only, it's the only version of hell you'll ever have to endure. This is as bad as it's ever going to get because after here, it just goes way, 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 way up, right? Amen. This is, and I have a lot of these, this is Asaph's oh yeah moment. Oh yeah. There's nothing on this earth as good as you. I remember that now. Oh, oh yeah, my, my flesh may fail, but God, you're my strength. You're my portion forever. I get that. I know that. Jonathan Edwards said this. I love it. The godly have a better portion even if all they have is God. True, right? One last thing he concluded. He found his clarity again in verses 27 and 28. That's why I'm so glad this was a song and not an album. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but put an end to anyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. This is the conclusion of a very long journey for Asaph. Yes, at a moment, it seems like the wicked prosper. Yes, at a moment, it seems like 
they do so well and the righteous suffer. I, I, I understand that's a perspective. And if we stop and we simply compare apples to apples at this very moment, we could resent the whole thing and become embittered and question God and where he is at a particular moment in time. But here's what Asaph concluded over a period of time. Cling to God. Cling to the character of God and the promises of God. And we're going to find out that he is so much, much more than enough. He is blessings forevermore. Forevermore. So think about it this way. God allows the wicked to prosper at times because this is really all they're ever going to get. And he's a patient, good God. And they're going to hear about these things. And some are going to come to believe and some are going to reject even farther. But here's the reality for us. Our God walks with us through our trials, knowing that where he's taking us is a far, far better place. That's why we consider it joy, because there's this thing going on called transformation, that he is shaping us into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit over time and circumstances, and it includes difficult things, things you don't understand. So wrap your arms around them, consider it joy. And you will grow, and then one day you will be like Jesus because he will take you to be with him. Amen, church? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for Asaph's song and for the reminder it is to us. It is so clear that, that life has never changed that much. But at times it looks as if the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. God, give us our clarity. Give us our clarity back that in your presence there is joy forevermore. If there are some here today who have uh, questioned and been embittered, I pray, God, they would draw near to you. I pray that they would sense this truth and this, your presence in their life. And God, give us the perspective that Asaph has, that there is no good but you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.